0: This month's big lunar eclipse. If you live in North or South America, the sky will put on a very fine show on the night of January 21st and 22nd. Lunar eclipses are not rare but ones that coincide with the so-called supermoon are a lot more unusual, and that's exactly what you will be seeing, provided that no clouds get in the way. A particularly big full moon going dark may be even turning coppery red in the process. Caveat absolutely guaranteed the media is going to oversell it, leading to lots of disappointment among people who've been jaded by special effects in the movies. I can see the hyperbolic Yahoo headlines now. Gigantic mega moon eclipses entire sky! Exclamation point. And of course, somebody somewhere will have their 15 minutes of fame by proclaiming some grand governmental conspiracy to conceal the fact that the Moon will collide with the Earth, probably due to some alleged malfeasance on the part of Hillary Clinton. Ignore the hyperbole, but please, if you possibly can, have a look at this Sky Show. Don't miss it. Just keep your expectations somewhere south of seeing a real-life Star Wars up there that night. Lunar eclipses are languorous affairs to be savored like a long, slow winter sunset, or maybe your last piece of chocolate. Totality, for example, the period of total lunar eclipse, lasts about an hour. Compare that with the frantic few minutes of a total solar eclipse, two minutes, maybe four minutes if you're lucky, that's an entirely different beast, and admittedly a lot more spectacular. January's moon show, from the first nearly unnoticeable penumbral contact of the outer edges of Earth's shadow with the moon, to the final not-with-a-bang-but-a-whimper end of it all, runs actually about five hours. The part you really don't want to miss is totality. That begins at 11.41 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and ends at 12.43 a.m., of course, the next day, Eastern Time. And if you're in the Pacific zone, lucky you, it's a far more convenient 8.41 to 9.43 p.m. on January 1st, starting maybe an hour earlier. It'll be worth a peek. That's when the umbral period of the eclipse begins, it's a little bit darker. So make a thermos of hot tea and bring a blanket, unless you're in South America, of course, then just kick back and enjoy. It should be nice and warm down there. Total lunar eclipses happen frequently. And unlike solar eclipses, you can see them from anywhere on the planet so long as the moon is in the sky at the time. We'll have another one, for example, on May 26th, 2021, not so long from now, and then again on May 15th of 2022, and yet another on November 8th, 2022. A dime a dozen, right? What makes this particular lunar eclipse special? is the fact that it coincides with a supermoon. The term is unfortunate because of the way it hypes the reality of the thing, but supermoon effect is real. And the idea behind it is pretty simple. The moon orbits the earth in an ellipse rather than a perfect circle, so sometimes it's closer to us and thus looks bigger. Sometimes it's further away and so it appears smaller. The variation in the moon's apparent size is significant. A perigee full moon, when it's closest to the Earth, looks about 14% bigger than an apogee one at the other end. For two reasons, people generally don't notice the difference. First, full moons only happen once a month, so it's a long time to wait between comparisons. Secondly, and more importantly, Most full moons don't coincide with apogee or perigee, so their size is somewhere in between maximum diameter and minimum. For those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, just... Trust me, but if some of you are reading and maybe you're hearing this, you check out my website where you can get the text on all of this. If so, have a look at uh, the diagram there. It graphically represents the size contrast between a perigee and an apogee full moon. You'll see that it's really pretty dramatic. Here's the point of this whole astronomy lesson. On January 21st, we get a double whammy, a nice big perigee full moon that just happens to go into total lunar eclipse. That combo platter is rare. I bet even aliens will be setting up their lawn chairs. So switch your perspective for a moment. What if you were looking at this event from the surface of the moon rather than from here on Earth? Well, lunar eclipses occur when the earth lies directly between the sun and moon, so earth's shadow is cast on the lunar surface. But if you were watching from the moon, something more like a solar eclipse would occur as earth blocked out the face of the sun from that lunar point of view it would actually be a magnificent thing to behold. You would see Earth as a black disk with a brilliant flickering ring of orange, red, and crimson light surrounding it. If you think about what you would be contemplating, it'll give you goosebumps. That flickering ring of orange, red, and crimson light is actually all of the sunsets and sunrises happening on the Earth at that particular moment combined. Pretty amazing. But you'll need to catch the next bus to the Moon if you want to see it. Our next step is closer to Earth, and it builds on what we just learned. What you are seeing projected onto the surface of the Moon during a lunar eclipse is actually the light of all of those sunsets and sunrises. That's why a lunar eclipse is generally more coppery than black. Of course, we all know that sunsets and sunrises come in a variety of shades, ranging from ho-hum to oh my god. This is why the color of each total lunar eclipse is so unpredictable. Can you predict whether tonight's sunset will be a memorable one? Probably not. Really, what you will be looking at on January 21st is Earth's weather. And even the weatherman gets that wrong a lot. Less romantically, a lunar eclipse also reflects the level of pollution in our atmosphere. The volcano Mount Pinatubo blew its top back in June 1991. A year and a half later, a lot of that dust was still in the air, and the next lunar eclipse was nearly black. What will the eclipsed moon look like on January 21st? No one knows, not any more than anyone can predict the weather that night. Sorrows. Sorrows. Here we get a bit more technical. Read on anyway. For reasons that lie on the other side of a short science class, we might just possibly also be close to a real technical breakthrough in evolutionary astrology, one pioneered by an Australian fellow named Murray Beauchamp. We'll meet Murray in a moment. There is a sun-moon opposition every month. That's just a simple full moon. Why then is there no lunar eclipse every month? Simple. Earth's shadow typically misses the Moon entirely. The Moon lies a bit above it or a bit below it. There may be a nearly invisible penumbral eclipse as the Moon passes through the faint edges of Earth's shadow. Another possibility is that the darker umbra of Earth's shadow might graze the Moon, creating a partial lunar eclipse. Or it might be the real deal, a total eclipse, like what's in store for us this month. For a lunar eclipse to occur, the moon must lie fairly close to the north node or the south node. That assures that the moon and the sun are lined up not only in terms of their sign positions, but also in terms of their declinations. That's the critical ingredient. The same is true for solar eclipses, by the way. Now, each eclipse, whether solar or lunar, has unique properties. How long does it last? How many seconds or minutes or hours? Is it total or partial? How big does the face of the sun or the moon look? Is the moon lined up with the north node or the south node? Well over two millennia ago, Chaldean astrologer-astronomers discovered that these identical eclipse-producing conditions repeat like clockwork. This enabled them to predict eclipses with great accuracy. They called this cycle the Saros, S-A-R-O-S. Its length is 18 years, 11 days, 8 hours. After that precise interval, Sun, Earth, and Moon— Return to approximately the same relative geometry. They are lined up the same way, and a nearly identical eclipse happens. That last phrase, a nearly identical eclipse, is critical here. Earlier, We saw that after this January's lunar eclipse, we'll have another one in May of 2021. That's only two years and four months later, way short of a Saros cycle. But it will be a different kind of eclipse in terms of length, the visual size of the moon, and so on. So all of the eclipses linked to a specific Saros cycle are like a family line, with strands of astronomical DNA held in common together they are called a saros series now there are separate solar and lunar saros series is by the way All of them are assigned numbers. Currently, for example, there are 41 active lunar uh, sorrows series happening, but each sorrows series evolves and eventually dies. Their lifespans vary a lot, but you can think in terms of a sorrows series lasting a very long time, say a thousand years, to get you in the ballpark. Are you getting dizzy yet? Sorry to be putting you through this, but I keep promising it's going to be worth it. At least I think so. Obviously, this is complicated territory. Space and format mercifully prevent me from getting into a book-length technicality in this uh, newsletter podcast. If you want to learn more, there is a fine article about the Saros cycle in Wikipedia. Just go there and Google Saros parentheses astronomy, and it will take you directly to Virgo Paradise. You can learn more than more than I know about the the whole Saros series and the Saros. Cycles themselves. You may be wondering what any of this has to do with astrology. You know, fair enough. Not much is a good initial answer. Your mileage may vary, but in my experience, lunar eclipses, while visually captivating, have not impacted me much more than the monthly full moon. Like you, I just grow a coat of fur, sharp fangs, and a compelling Jones for human blood. But taken as a Saros series. These same lunar eclipses might provide a powerful missing link in the foundational logic of evolutionary astrology. The key is to remember that the nodes of the moon are critical to eclipses and that the nodes of the moon are also the heart of what makes evolutionary astrology a unique discipline within our field. They're what links your chart to reincarnation the long journey of your soul through human history. And just maybe, lunar eclipses and the Saros series can focus our attention on certain specific periods in history, perhaps periods which feel inexplicably familiar to you, if you get my drift. Earlier I mentioned uh, Murray Beauchamp. Uh, He has been part of my Australian uh, astrological apprenticeship program pretty much from the beginning, and he has developed some intriguing ideas about the Lunar Sorrows series. His book, The Cryptic Cycle, Astrology and the Lunar Sorrows, is unfortunately currently listed as out-of-print limited availability on Amazon. You can still get it via the American Federation of Astrologers, and there's a link in the print version or internet version of this uh, newsletter. You can also contact Murray directly at lunarsorros at gmail.com. That's uh, Lunar, L-U-N-A-R, S-A-R-O-S, one word, lunar sorrows at gmail. Uh, Murray can uh, mail you copies of his book for $20 Australian plus postage, a little cheaper than the uh, AFA site, by the way. Now Murray has lectured quite a lot in Australia and New Zealand, but his work is pretty much unknown in the Northern Hemisphere. His ideas are still formative but I already find them extremely intriguing. Here's his technique in a nutshell. Look for the lunar eclipse immediately prior to your birth. It does not have to be total. It can be umbral or even penumbral. Find out which lunar Saros series that prenatal lunar eclipse belongs to. Remembering those series can run thousand years or so. Then look for the first umbral eclipse in your Saros series. That is the birth of the series, that first umbral eclipse. Murray says make sure it's the first umbral one, not the first eclipse of the series, which is always penumbral and does not count. By the way, The Cryptic Cycle, his book contains tables and internet links that will help you with all of this. Well, the proof of the pudding, it's too early to use the word proof, but here's what got me hooked on Murray's ideas. The lunar eclipse that immediately preceded my own birth was part of Lunar Sorrow Series number 116, 116. That cycle began with an umbral lunar eclipse way back on June 16, 1155 A.D. Now, let me be the first to say what follows is totally subjective and possibly meaningless. All I can say in defense of what I am about to convey is that the inevitable first test of all astrological techniques lies in one's own personal experience. I would never teach anything that failed to illuminate my own life. We must, of course, eventually go beyond our narrow ego world in order to make sure we are not turning a personal quirk into somebody's cosmology. But before we open our mouths, basically, we need to be sure that what we conjecture will be helpful to people in general. But everything begins with your own personal astrological experience. And that's perfectly natural, and no one should be ashamed of it. The 12th century when my own sorrows series began, is the high Middle Ages. For what it's worth, I have always related in a strong, visceral way to that time. The Gothic cathedrals were rising. A kind of humanism entered Christianity, and with it the onset of many of the very battles that I am still fighting in this lifetime, publicly and personally. I won't bore you with details, but it's just a feeling in my heart. When many, many years ago I I was reading Rodney Collins' wonderful book, The Theory of Celestial Influence, I first heard of the Christian monastery at Cluny. I got chills. Was I once there as a literate monk? A literate monk. I thought so, and Clooney was an active upheaval around the time of the lunar eclipse that started my series. I did not know about my specific astrological connection to that time until I met Murray Beauchamp. In common with many Westerners, my knowledge of Chinese history is pitiful, although it has improved somewhat since I began teaching there a decade ago. There is a weird familiarity about China to me. It leaves me with no doubt that I've had lifetimes there. For some previously inexplicable reason, I lit up the first time I encountered the architecture, style, and romantic history of the Song Dynasty, S-O-N-G, just like you'd sing a song, the Song Dynasty, which I had never heard of before I began visiting China. I felt sure that I had a lifetime in that period. Well, you guessed it. The Fingerprints of Sorrow series number 116 are all over the Song Dynasty. Here's a quote from Wikipedia. The Southern Song Dynasty, 1127 to 1279, refers to the period after the Song lost control of the northern half of China. During this time, the Song court retreated south of the Yangtze River and established its capital at what was then called Lin'an, now the city of Hangzhou. That line gave me goosebumps when I read it. I've spent many happy days in Hangzhou, and I felt a compelling sense of deja vu there, especially in the Buddhist temples in the hills above the city. Was my intuition correct that I had actually been alive in China during that period? Who knows? I I can't prove it. but. My heart was saying so, and now there is an astrological reason that connects me to that time and also to the, this uh, time in the High Middle Ages I referred to. Now, I'm not sure, uh, do I have to choose between those two lives? Uh, does that Saros series begin a cycle in which I experience lives in both places? I, I, I'm not sure. Life, uh, of course, is sometimes short and uncertain. Who knows? But my heart is telling me that Murray Beauchamp is on to something with his research into the Lunar Saros series. If I had to formulate a hypothesis, it would be this, that a lifetime or lifetimes spent around the beginning of the Lunar Saros cycle, reflected in the lunar eclipse just before your birth represents the roots of the karmic issues with which you are reckoning today. Hypothesis. I would also like to pursue the obvious conjecture that we might tend to take birth around other subsequent lunar eclipses in our Saros series. I've not yet really explored that possibility. Will time prove this hypothesis to be helpful or not? I don't know. Like almost everything of lasting value in astrology, the answer will not come from one single person, but rather from marrying this idea and the entire astrological community together in the alchemical cauldron of time. That's how we figure things out, as astrologers. We may know the answer in a generation or two, in other words, but only, only, if we ask the question. In any case, it is something to ponder as this big-as-you-can-get supermoon turns to copper on the night of January 21st. One last thought. The Lunar Sorrows series, of which this upcoming eclipse is a member, began on July 7th of 1694, so it's a more recent cycle. As time goes by, It will be interesting to see if events around that historical period, at the end of the 17th century, have any apparent karmic relevance to some of our friends who are in utero at the present moment, kids about to be born. I also note that the Bank of England was founded in 1694, the same year, and it is the model on which most modern central banks are based. I find this intriguing, especially in the light of Uranus crossing back in a Taurus on March 6th, and the world's economy seeming to be on the verge of major evolution, or even revolution, as we face what people are increasingly calling late-stage capitalism. Is something about our relationship with money that began in 1694 with the founding of the Bank of England coming to a time of karmic reckoning? Well, we'll see. Interesting questions. In many of these newsletters, I I try to raise questions and offer some answers. This one, mostly questions. Mostly questions. So the ball is in your court. Thank you.